This is the Capness HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Capness. Hello, and welcome to the Capness HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Capness. Our guest today is Dennis Brower. Dennis, are you ready to be great today? Uh, I am. Yeah, great. Dennis Brower is the author of The Return on Leadership, a book that defines and quantifies the impact of the leader on growth in people, teams, and markets. In The Return on Leadership, he combines his hands-on experience as a frontline leader, curiosity of the social scientist, and communicates, and communicates it all in the writing style he learned as city editor of a small-town newspaper. He's led the turnaround of a global cloud services business, co-founded a software company, and flown from U.S. aircraft carriers in search of Soviet submarines at the height of the Cold War. He holds a certificate in leadership coaching from Georgetown University, and he lives with his wife, Rebecca, on a small farm in Northern Virginia, and he rides his motorcycle just enough to keep it exciting. But as I would say, you have a very exciting life so far. You've done a lot of <laughs> things that most normal people haven't done yet. That's, pretty, that's really good. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been interesting so far. I look back on it and uh, you know, people ask about my background, and I think I can say with quite a bit of confidence that it's unique. No doubt about that. Yes. So talk to us about your book. Is this your first book that you've written or have you written other books in the past? No, this is, this is the first book I've written. Uh, it just actually became available to purchase last Tuesday, September 12th. So it's all very new and, and very fresh. It's, it's a book that, you know, people ask how long it took to write it. And I, I guess the answer to that is 12 years. I mean, I've got, I've got notes that go back that far. I abandoned it any number of times along the way. Finally, really got serious about it last July, and uh, you know the way events came together, I, I had enough time to actually focus on it and get it done. So, yeah, it's it's all very fresh and very exciting. So, Dennis, what motivated you to finally finish the book? You know, the the motivation I had all along was really the the same at a high level. You know, my experience in business was that you know, when you talk to senior leaders in almost any organization and ask them about growth, they tend to say two things. You know, one is the organization isn't growing as fast as they think it should be. And the second thing is they're not really sure why. So I, I always wondered about that. You know, I had experiences in the companies I worked for and working for different leaders where some places were very successful and, and other companies in the same business sector weren't, weren't successful at all. So, you know, that was a consistent thing for me. What finally came together was in 2016, I ended up accepting a position that required a very, very long daily commute. So I was spending... On the na- in the neighborhood of 20 hours a week commuting. And it was either do something productive or go crazy. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this is the time to finally finish that book. So my trusty Macintosh and I did 800 words on the way in and 800 words on the way home. And in about six months, I had a draft. And once you have a draft, you know, then it's just an editing process. So that's, that's what really got it going. Did you publish the book yourself or you went to one of those publishing companies to publish it for you? I used what's known as a hybrid publisher. It's a company called Fast Pencil. So on one extreme, you've got the complete do-it-yourself, you know, where you can go to Amazon or any, anybody else and just upload that file and, and it's co- you're completely on your own. And at the other end are the traditional, I guess you'd refer to New York uh, publishers, where supposedly they take care of everything. Fast Pencil does it kind of in between. So I got assistance from them on things like editing and cover design and marketing and that sort of thing. But then I also have a great deal of involvement in the marketing programs and and certainly the content and final, final say on exactly how the book is laid out and everything else. So the hybrid model worked well for me. I've got a background in sales and marketing. 
being able to actually lay hands on the details of it just worked. So Dennis, obviously you want everyone to buy your book, but when you wrote it, who was your target audience when you was writing the book? You know, my, my target audience really is the mid-level to senior level leader in an organization. I would have initially said in businesses, but over the last three years, I've coached people in, you know, in associations and nonprofits and that sort of thing. And I'm finding that the issues are all the same. So that mid to senior level manager who's got, you know, probably at least three years of leadership experience. But what I'm finding now is that people, I'm talking with people who want to get into leadership and they're, they're actually, this is actually kind of a nice primer to go through before you step into that first leadership role as well. So I've heard a lot of people say that the, the mid-level managers, they don't get enough support as far as professional development from the company. So would you agree with that statement or... I would, I would agree wholeheartedly with that statement. You know, one of the analogies that I've used recently is about four years ago, I stepped out of frontline leadership for, really for the first time in my adult life, had the luxury of devoting myself to the study of leadership. And after about eight months of it, you know, of being just immersed in the science of leadership, which really a science that I didn't even know existed, I realized just how ignorant I was about the actual practice and science of what works and what doesn't and why it works. And, I, you know, I, I was no different than all the other people that I worked with. You get, a, you get a week or two here or there, probably not more than four to six weeks through a 30-year career. And if you think about it, you know, that's your core profession. Uh, profession. You're, that's really not much time spent on professional education. Yes. So I was in the Army for 25 years. And in my experience, some leaders are good leaders for some people, not so good for others. And there's a select few who are good leaders for everyone. Why do yeah. you think that is? You know, that, that's really the question at the center of the book and the center of the inquiry that I had about leadership. And one of the things that I discovered as I went through Georgetown was an area of research called adult stage theory. And it really explains that. There are, you know, the theory of adult development used to be that it was purely chronological. You know, you're, you're a teenager and then you become an adult and then you become middle-aged and then you become elderly, right? And that's just how, how it works. But that's really, that's really a view of your physical and mental age. And for the leader, that's, that's only one small aspect of it. What's actually much more important is the perspective of the leader. And that's how they view their, the world around them and their ability to have an impact on it. So as people read the book, they'll find a really important distinction between reactive leaders and creative leaders. And reactive leaders can be successful in very detail-oriented, very short-term focused environments, right? That's, that's just where they shine. Creative leaders tend to uh, have longer timelines, have more inclusive approaches to their teams, and a more, um, a more introspective style around making sure that their assumptions are valid, that everyone's being heard, and that you're really doing the work to grind out, you know, grind the best ideas out of every, all the input that you can get. So if you find creative leaders, they tend to be successful in any kind of environment, and that's really one of the proof points in the book. I flew with a guy... 30 years ago now, he was my Navy pilot. We parted company after spending five years together in the cockpit. He stayed in the Navy for 26 years. I went into corporate America at IBM and CompuServe and CenturyLink and companies like that. And after we got back together, after 25 years, we started to compare notes. And all the challenges that we saw, all the, all the people stuff was all the same. And we actually had an assessment done of difficult turnarounds that we had done that were important parts of our career. For me, it was a turnaround of a company called Savas. Uh, where I ran a, a, a global business unit uh, component of the company. And for J.P. Kelly, my, my Navy pilot, it was his turnaround of a Navy training squadron. And you think those are really, really different environments, but the principles are all the same. And when we were assessed 
using uh, the Leadership Circle Profile, which is a quantitatively in enabled assessment tool, we came out with virtually identical profiles. So again, both came out as creative leaders, both in highly you know, diverse environments using the, exactly the same techniques, just wearing a different uniform, really. So Dennis, why do you think some companies, whether they're large, small, corporate, are, are better able at developing leaders than other companies are? I guess the first part of my answer to that would be, I think there's a little bit of luck involved because we don't do a good job as a culture of evaluating leaders before they're hired on their ability to lead. We'll hire them on, on maybe on their ability to learn or to manage their attention to detail, things like that, but not on their ability to really motivate and to help people understand their role in achieving a vision. So I, I think some of it is luck. I think some of it also, I think probably the bigger component, the larger component is culture. I've worked with a gentleman who today is the executive chairman of a, of a publicly held multi-billion dollar company that was, when he took over 15 years ago, was literally within 11 hours of bankruptcy. And they've built, saved it on the brink, built it back from there. But what they've done along the way is they've really cultivated this culture where there's open discussions. If you've got an issue, you bring it up. And if somebody brings something up, you listen to it, right? You try yes. to find the truth that's in there. It's not just a meritocracy where the best ideas rise to the top. It's really something that's built around respect for others' opinions, which means listening to them, but it also means allowing them to challenge you and, allowing, and, and challenging those ideas as well. So that, that ability to really engage in that kind of active, that sort of active debate and driving it to, the, to specific action items, you know, that component of, of the culture is, is just really, really essential. So Dennis, on another subject, what type of motorcycle do you have and how long have you been riding? Well, you know, I had a motorcycle when I was a, a kid, a teenager for a couple of years and managed to survive that. <laughs> I had my second motorcycle when I was a, a Navy Lieutenant and um, in San Diego and managed to survive that. I now have a Yamaha 1300 Roadstar that I've had for about a year at this point. And I live in an area it's easy. If, if you look me up online, it'll say Washington, D.C., but we actually live about 55 miles west of Washington, D.C., and it's, you know, it's rolling hills and horse country, and the, the, the Blue Ridge is, is 10 miles right out that window, so it's a nice place to ride motorcycle out here. That's good. Dennis, can you talk about time you were successful in the past, what you learned from the success, and what we can learn from your success? Sure. I think probably the best example, the most relevant one for listeners of the podcast is actually what's in Chapter 6 of my book. Uh, that the chapter is entitled Putting Out the Grease Fire. And the story behind that title is that I, uh, I was hired to run product management for the network business uh, component of a global IT services company. And after a few months, there was an executive shakeup and I ended up in charge of this thing. And it was a complete mess. You know, revenue was declining at 8% per year, had declined $35 million on a you know, $300 million base the year before. No profitability. Customers are leaving as fast as they can. You know, as quickly as they can get out of their contracts. And the joke became that it was like buying a house. You sign the contract, you shake hands with the realtor, and the realtor says, oh, by the way, there's just, there's just one other thing. There's a grease fire in the kitchen, so good luck with that. Right? What happened was, you know, it was, a, it was a business that had gone through a lot of change, not very successfully, uh, really hit by the forces of globalization and new technology, and uh, it was in dire need of a turnaround. And you know, I, I kind of stepped right into the middle of it. And uh, I ended up taking over a team that was, was ready to go, but just really needed that focus on, first of all, vision 
and then you know which is helping making sure that we all scoped out a view of a future worth worth caring about and then engagement which is okay what's everybody's role in achieving that and then baking that down into a, a plan for execution so over the next two years we were able to turn that turn that mess around as they say and it went from an eight percent revenue decline to three percent revenue growth went from dramatically unprofitable to to profitable and uh, we began selling new services you know there was a there was a lot of work along the way but I would say that the you know the lessons for that I, I got out of that were first of all it's it's really it can be really difficult to sort of keep your cool through it all and the saying I used a lot during that time was you know things are rarely as good or as bad as they seem you know it seemed like man the place is burning down it's like well you know Actually, it's not. We've got business problems, but if we focus, we can work our way through them. And then you'd have a win and you go, oh man, it's great. We made it through. And it's like, well, actually that was just one tick in the right direction. We still got to stay focused and keep working on it. And that really goes to the bottom line message, which is over and over and over again, vision, engagement, and execution in that order. You got to define a future, but you understand their role in getting in accomplishing that. And then, you know, relentless execution on top of it. And it's like the old shampoo bottle that says rinse and repeat. That's what you just have to keep doing over and over and over again. That is a great success. Dennis, next talk about a time you failed in the past, what you learned from this and what we can learn from this. Another great question. Probably the most poignant one for me, um, as I consider this question, was my first contact with literary agents at the end of last year. (laughs) It, you know, you, everybody wants their baby to be cute and, and, uh, and intelligent. And the first couple of literary agents who looked at my, my book said, yeah, if this is your baby, it's kind of ugly and confused. (laughs) So there's a lot there, there's some good stuff in here, but there's a lot of work to be done. You know, what I really learned from that is first of all, your, your first, your version of one product in any case is not, is not the end product. And if you think that you're kidding yourself, whether that's you know, software, enterprise software, or a book that you've written. But then the second thing is that you've really got to set your pride and your easily bruised ego aside and really listen to the feedback. Because the feedback that I got from those, those agents, those guys who've been in the business and making a living in the business for a long time, really drove the, the ability of me to finish the book. I mean, it, I completely retargeted my book. I threw out about 40% of it because it was confusing. And uh, changed the emphasis, laid the narrative narrative out differently. So, you know, the lesson there was as painful as it was to listen to that feedback and not just listen to it, but really embrace it. Really look for the truth in it and find ways to use it as a building block to leverage forward. You know, I've seen that happen time and time again. That, as I said, is a a particularly poignant one. It was a, a work that was only credited to me. So I had to accept every bit of responsibility for the parts that were good. So, Dennis, you talked about this a little bit already, but expand on how you add value and have to solve problems. That's an interesting challenge, right? A lot of people, when you ask them, what do you like to do and how you add value, they'll say, well, I like to solve problems. It's like, okay, yeah, that's great. Um, we do need firefighters in the world. There's no doubt about that. So, what I really try to do to add value as problems crop up, first of all, back up and make sure I've got the big picture. And, um, you know, as, as part of that, it's necessary to ask what other information do I have to have? And people will, you'll typically get all kinds of conflicting information. But I think a part, uh, a step that a lot of people skip over is to challenge their own assumptions, right? It's like, I think I know what I want to do. I think I know how this all works. But to really ask the question of, do I actually know that? 
uh, I think it was Mark Twain or a similar philosopher who said, it's not what you know or what you don't know that matters. It's what you think you know that isn't so. And there's so many times there have been assumptions or things that have been repeated, you know, like the old game of post office, and they sort of harden into fact and get passed around and they affect decision making. A lot of times it's limit, limiting behaviors. We can't do that because we tried it. You know, that will never work because we can't afford it. And in many cases, those assumptions aren't true. And what I really try to do is to drag those assumptions out and challenge those assumptions. Ultimately, what I like to do to be, be able to add value is, again, to get people to focus less on today's problems and more on where are we trying to take this place? What are we really here to do? What does that future look like? And it's, uh, you know, for companies that are really, really deep into problem solving, that's a very wrenching uh, conversion to make because there's sort of this natural gravity around problem solving. It's rewarding. You get that, you know, the adrenaline hit when you're working with it. You get the serotonin rush when you're done with it. You know, the runner's tie. And to pull people out of that day to day and get them to look even for an hour at, hey, what's this place going to be like in three years? What do you want it to be like? Who are our customers going to be and how are we going to serve them? Is, is really difficult. So, but I have seen over and over again, when organizations do that, it creates such, such creative bursts of energy and ideas of new things that the company could be doing today to line themselves up for that, that future. So again, I, I just try to get the big picture going, extend the time horizon out and, uh, and lay out a path to a future worth caring about. I know in the army, we have a saying, it's, it's, it's hard to plan for the future when you're in a six inch knife fight. We used to say that yes. all the time. I've heard that saying. It's a, it's a vivid one and it's, it's true. Yeah. Like we, we know we've got to plan it. Oftentimes it's, that's used as an excuse not to, not to look at the future, right? Hey, I'm in a knife fight. It's just like, well, why are you in a knife fight every day? Come on, man. What's wrong with your life? So, yes. so next, talk to us about somebody who's helped you in the past and how they helped you. Well, I guess I would, I'll throw two people out. And there's a common thread here. One is I, uh, my boss, when I ran the turnaround at Savas, was a guy um, by the name of Bill Fathers. He's a former Special Forces commando from the UK, also one of the smartest people I've ever known. And he was one of the people who kind of mid-career for me really held my feet to the fire. And uh, he did it in an interesting way where there were certain things that he expected of me and he made that very clear. So the clarity around those expectations was great. And the second thing was, and this was the part that where he really did me a favor, didn't feel like it at the time, but it, it eventually it became clear what a, what a gift it was. He, um, when I committed to something, he held me to it. So even though there were times I thought, well, he probably forgot about that commitment. It's really kind of overcome by events. There was one, one time in particular where he, he took me aside and just, you know, up one side and down the other about these three commitments that I'd made that I thought were water under the bridge had been long forgotten. It's just like, they were not forgotten at all. They were held up as specific examples of my failings. And it's just like, damn, you're right. <laughs> I really let that one drop. And then the second person I, I would, I'd like to mention is my wife, Rebecca. I've dedicated this book to her as my partner in all things. It's really true. And, uh, you know, I wrote probably 80% of this book from last July to this March. And that meant that I was immersed in it, right? So I ate, slept, breathed this. In, I had a full-time job, so I focused on that while I was there. But I'll tell you, when I was commuting, when I was waking up in the middle of the night, I was thinking about the book project. And you know how it is as you're working on something new and sort of unbounded, you come up with a lot of ideas. You, you come up with, well, maybe A connects to B or A connects to C, or maybe if I flip this around and look at it a different way, that'll make sense. 
Well, Rebecca was the person who had to hear all those raw ideas, right? And she's the one who would, would challenge me on, typically on the clarity, right? So it's like, okay, I think I understand what you're saying. And it sort of makes sense. But you've really got to work on the way you're communicating that. You've really got to drive towards clarity on that. Because it doesn't just have to make sense in your head. It's got to make sense in someone else's head. So you got to find a better way to, to clean up that logic, come up with better analogies or metaphors to communicate it. In both of those cases, it really came down to people holding, holding me accountable to making sure that I'm keeping my, uh, my commitments and then being really clear, driving for great clarity around what it is I'm trying to achieve and what it is I'm trying to communicate. I mean, it, it seems like the, the bosses or leaders that you have that are the hardest on you, those are the ones and, that you actually appreciate the most when it's all said and done, isn't it? It, it, it really is. And there, were, there, were, there were uncomfortable discussions I had in every case, but those are the ones that I learned from. And the, the funny thing is, I'll go back to adult stage theory again. You know, there are a variety of stages. You know, there's reactive and creative are two of the primary stages, and that covers most of the population. But people always ask, well, how can I move from one to the next? And the answer is, well, some of it happens with age and some of it happens with experience. But if you want to move forward, find yourself over your head in a crisis. And that's when you will actually change your viewpoint, broaden your perspective, try to look at new things. When your back is against the wall is when you're most creative. In those cases where there's a tough boss who pins you against the wall and says, you promised me this and you delivered something less, what's going on? I mean, that's sort of a gut-wrenching kind of micro-crisis there. Depending how big the issue is, maybe it's a full-time crisis, a real crisis. I think it's the responsibility of the leader to drive that kind of accountability. I've tried to do it. I think we did a good job of it at Sabbath. There are other places I wish I'd done better at it. It's a, it's a constant challenge, you know, to, to have that sort of honesty and clarity and be working with people who will take it um, not as an emotional attack, but as something that's like, look, this is good for the business and ultimately it's good for you. I, I think there's a saying that says something like, if you're in an uncomfortable situation, that means you're growing and you should be glad you're in an uncomfortable situation. So you're yeah. actually getting better. That has certainly been my experience, yeah. Dennis, next tell us something about yourself that of course your, your close family might know, close friends might know, but most people don't know about you. So you asked how to pronounce my name earlier, Brower, B-R-O-U-W-E-R, and people ask, What's wrong with the spelling? I mean, people don't believe it the first two times I spell it. Sometimes I think they think I don't know how to spell my name because there's this extraneous vowel in the middle. What's up with that? Well, it's actually the Dutch spelling of the name of the word brewer, right? So if I were of English descent, I'd pronounce and spell my name brewer, and there's an AU version of it for German. So what that means is that I had a, an ancestor who was a member of the Dutch Brewing Guild in the 16th century. You know, that's, that's part of my lineage. And the way that crops up today, in addition to a name that people get confused about, is that I actually brew beer. So I started brewing beer about 10 years ago when it was a wild and exotic thing to do. Now, <laughs> yeah, it was before craft beer really took off. And about, uh, I think about six years ago, I, really, I got really serious about it. I upgraded my equipment, went from plastic buckets to stainless steel stuff and improved my process. And as an example, sort of at the peak about a year and a half ago, I brewed four different types of beer for an Oktoberfest that we put on. And it's really cool because in some ways, I think it's a metaphor for leadership. I think I can do this without stretching it too far because there's a well-known process that you need to follow, right? Yes. For sanitation and for temperature control and for, you know, when you move it from this vessel to that vessel. And when you do it right, it improves everybody's life, right? It, yes, feels, it, good. it feels good as the brewer, but it feels really good as the person who's pouring a glass and enjoying this great, this great homebrew. So uh, it is something I really enjoy. 
And I do wonder if it maybe isn't because a number of generations ago, there was somebody in my family who, who did it full time the profession. That's a good story. So Dennis, I understand you have something for our listeners. Yes. And this is a limited time offer that has to do with the availability of, of my book, uh, The Return on Leadership. Let me make sure I'm really clear about this because there are about three steps, I think, in this. The first thing is, if for any of the listeners who go to any of the places that my book, The Return on Leadership, is sold, that includes Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million, if they go there and purchase it, that's step number one. Step number two is to take the receipt from that, a screenshot, whatever it is, and email that to email it to returnonleadership at gmail.com. So that's returnonleadership at gmail.com and include the name of your your podcast in the subject line, which how would you like that put in there? Just Cadmus um, HR? Yes, yes, that'd be fine. Okay. If they include that in the subject line, um, they will automatically receive a bunch of bonus materials that go along with the book. So planning worksheets that will help them map out relationships in the organization that will help them envision a future and build a plan back from the future to today. A couple of additional C stories, which are used to illuminate some of the, uh, the principles along the way and other bonus materials that are in there. So again, if they go to Amazon, purchase the book, send the receipt to returnonleadership at gmail.com with HR cabinets in the subject line, we'll send them those bonus materials immediately. Thank you, Dennis. Sure. Dennis, do you have any social media links or platform you'd like to provide other listeners so they can reach out to you? Yeah, so I've got Return on Leadership on Facebook. We have that page out there. And, uh, you know, we've got a growing population there. I'm also at DL Brower on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Got good communities there. Ultimately, what I really like to have people do is to go to my website, dlbrower.com. That's D-L-B-R-O-U-W-E-R.com. And they can sign up for my blog there, uh, Speaking on Leadership. And uh, that'll keep them in the loop on, on anything new that's going on. I blog at least weekly and uh, publish it from there. And then any other special offers that come along along the way. That's how I'd really like to communicate. If somebody would like to communicate to me directly, Dennis at dlbrower.com, uh, they can always reach me there as well. Thank you, Dennis. And for our listeners, we'll provide the links to everything in our show notes. Dennis, for coming to the end of our talk, is there any like, last words of advice or wisdom you'd like to pass on to everyone? Well, you know, I, first of all, I'd just like to say thanks, Jason, for, for hosting me on this. I really appreciate it. Leadership is an exciting thing. It's a challenging profession. It's a profession I don't think that we as a culture spend enough time really cultivating and thinking about it. My focus on this book has been all along to, to challenge this assumption that leadership is this unquantifiable, optional, soft skill and help people see that it's a required, measurable, hard skill. It's, a, it, it's an organizational skill that if you practice certain behaviors in certain ways, vision, engagement, execution, you and your organization will benefit. You'll grow faster. Your employees and your customers will be happier. You know, your business results in whatever way matters to you will improve. You know, that's what this is about. I hear too many people say, my job is easy, but working here is hard. And that almost always flows from assumptions about leadership. Yes. Now, I just had a picture in my mind of the image where it says, um, a lion leading 1,000 sheep is to be more feared than one sheep leading 1,000 lions. Yeah. So, Dennis, thank you for your time. really appreciate it. I know you're a busy person. Have fun on your motorcycles and brew some more great beer. Okay. So listeners, thank you for your time. Remember to be great every day. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again and be great every day. Thank you.